0: you're listening to choose fi radio the blueprint for financial independence lives here if you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement you're in the right place Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online.
1: This is an episode that we've been wanting to do for a while. Uh, Brad has been in a mastermind group with Harry, the rideshare guy from the rideshareguy.com for over the last, I don't know, two, two plus years at this point. And if Brad is referencing one person to me that is just blowing his mind with all these different ideas, it is Harry. And so it took us close to 18 months now, but we're having him on the show and he is going to be helping us explore both how to optimize specifically the rideshare services like Uber and Lyft, but then expanding that out to the rogue entrepreneur. And I think this conversation is just going to be so much fun. And to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy?
2: Hey, Jonathan, I'm doing great. And yeah, as you alluded to, Harry is just a guy that I personally look up to as far as just the entire entrepreneurial sphere. He is just rocking it on every level. His site, therideshareguy.com is the leader in the entire ride sharing industry, and he just has built an amazing business with financial independence as the background. He is from the Phi world. I think we could go any number of ways with this interview and it's just going to be a really, really good time. So with that, Harry, welcome to the show.
3: Awesome. Thanks for that uh, amazing intro and hopefully I can live up to everyone's high expectations.
1: Yeah. Well, me too. We threw the bar out there and just we'll watch you strive to reach it for the rest of the episode. (laughs) Perfect. I'm ready. Well, let's go ahead and dive into this, man. And before we do it, like Brad set up the context, you're in the FI community. What does that mean for you specifically? How did you find out about financial independence and what has that meant for some of the decisions that you've made over the last several years?
3: Yeah, no, that's a great starting point because I mean, I actually really got into personal finance in general back in 2009 when I graduated college, I started working as an aerospace engineer and, you know, I was making a decent starting salary for an engineer, but honestly, I didn't know a ton about finance, especially the nitty gritty stuff like investing and where to put my money and what to do with it. So I really just started researching and I stumbled upon a lot of personal finance blogs in the early days. And this was a little bit before the whole five movement. So I was finding finding blogs. Um, You know, there are more like the oblivious investor and the finance buff, which some of your listeners may be familiar with. And at a certain point, I thought to myself, hey, maybe I'll start documenting my journey. So I started a personal finance blog of my own and it was really more for fun, but that was kind of what led me down the path of really thinking about finding, you know, I've always been a side hustler and I've always been looking to make money and save money, but really kind of looking at it more holistically
2: and putting everything together. That's kind of what started me on my journey. And Harry, that personal finance blog, did that really light the fire of this entrepreneurial spirit that you have? Did it predate that? Did you have other side hustles? Talk us through like the inception of Harry, the side hustler. (laughs)
3: So you know what, I think the best way to put it is I've always liked making money and, but I've always, I've so always sort of gravitated to kind of what I call high return on investment type hustles or jobs. I mean, I could go through a whole laundry list, uh, but maybe that's. No, 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 no. Let's, is. let's go through the laundry list. That's exactly what we want to do. Let's go through all Perfect. of them. Perfect. And you know, I'm going to, I'm actually going to start with a good one because in college uh, I literally was the laundry boy for my volleyball team <laughs> and Uh, You know, at the end of every practice, we had practice every day, and at the end, everyone had a mesh bag that they would throw all of their dirty clothes into, and I would come swoop them up and throw them in the industrial washer that they had in, you know, behind the gym. I would get paid for two hours every day. It was only 15 bucks an hour, but you know all the teams had to use this washer and dryer. And there was sort of this unwritten or unspoken code that we would all, all help each other out, right? So I would just drop it off in the washer and the next person that came along would move it to the dryer and they would put their stuff in the washer. So I was getting paid for two hours every day for maybe 5 minutes of work the next morning you know I'd go pick it up and throw it in a big bag and dump it on the floor no folding nothing like that and you know it was 30 bucks a day not a ton of money but I think when you think about the time 5 minutes it was an awesome return right there All right,
1: so, <laughs> so I don't want to like go to the end of the story cuz I actually do want to get the full on list but I do want to point out that You're just looking at things a little bit differently and you're looking for these, I guess Brad would call it outliers, these places where you can get outsized results for less effort. And that's an incredible theme that I think is going to carry us through this entire conversation, right?
3: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think that it wasn't necessarily a strategy I had. I think it was something that maybe I just got a little lucky to that I gravitated towards. I mean, I've done everything from coaching volleyball, which was definitely a bigger time commitment, but I would have done that job for free because it was so much fun coaching volleyball. And I also, I think I got paid around a thousand dollars a month in college to do that one. Um, you know, in high school, I remember my first job ever when I was 14. before I think you were legally allowed to work, I somehow got a job where I was a chat room monitor for this company called Jester Digital that is obviously no longer around. and no one actually used this service. so I was online every day for two or three hours getting paid to basically do my homework. And another job that I had in high school, I worked for a company called the Princeton Review, which was a test prep company that's still around, I think still doing pretty well. And, you know, I got paid probably 12 bucks an hour to do a bunch of stuff around the office and filing. But the bonus was that I got free SAT tutoring for math and English and all of that, which I know at the time was worth thousands of dollars. I'm sure at at this point it's more, I probably wouldn't have been able to afford it on my own, but I guess I've always sort of just looked for, you know, kind of those types of jobs and those types of
2: hustles. And it's definitely translated into bigger and better the older I've gotten. So you know that our audience is always looking for actionable tips and other than the clothes washing during college (laughs) with the volleyball team. Do you have any other hacks or tips from your college experience that could be relatable to the audience?
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that sometimes it's just about doing things that, you know, maybe on the surface, you know, like if you went and you you might not apply to go and do a laundry job, for example. Right. But if you start doing it and you realize that it's only five minutes a day, it sounds pretty good at that point. Right. But of course, as you can imagine, no one really advertises that in college. I was also a, I believe they called him grader. So I wasn't a TA, but I graded papers. And the teacher that I ended up working for, he only assigned one homework every few weeks. And there were three of us grading. So I only had to grade one homework for I think the entire 12 week or you know, one or two homeworks for the entire 10, 10 week quarter. And I still got paid every week. And that was actually pretty decent pay. So I think sometimes it's just about looking at things on the surface. And even though it may not seem appealing on the surface, like what's the harm in trying or what's the harm in doing something? Because, you know, if a lot of people aren't willing to do it, uh, you know, sometimes you can kind of stand out or put yourself in a position where you're just trying new things and looking at opportunities. And it may not always be for the, you know, what's on the surface, uh, you know, is
2: actually what it's like in real life. So, Harry, you said aerospace engineer. Right. That's, yes. that's, that's like a that's rocket
1: something- scientist, right? Is that a stretch?
2: <laughs>
3: uh, you know, so I did intern one summer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. So I guess for one summer, I was sort of technically a rocket scientist, but uh, you know, I can definitely tell you the work that I was doing there was uh,
2: not that complex. <laughs> <laughs> that presumably is a fairly high paying career or, or ultimately can be. And yeah. now you've turned into the rideshare guy, but obviously there, there's a lot between here and there. Did you pick that major because of interest? Did you pick it in some regard because of potential earnings? Did you pick your college in particular because it had aerospace engineering as as an option? Give me some background on that.
3: Yeah, you know, these are all actually really great questions. I I feel like I'm learning a lot about myself right now, to be honest, (laughs) because the more you dig, I'm starting to see some patterns, too, the more I talk. And definitely, I grew up in Los Angeles. And so really, my main choice for college, I wanted to go somewhere that wasn't L.A., so I applied to UC San Diego, got in and, you know, just seemed like a great place, heard that it was a good school. And so I went in and I knew that I liked math and science. And I remember actually when I was applying to UCSD, I picked my major as mechanical and aerospace engineering just because I said, hey, you know what? I like planes. That seems like a or sorry, it was aerospace engineering, not mechanical, um, you know, but it seemed like just something that would be kind of cool. So I actually went into UCSD having already picked aerospace engineering as my major and I figured that I could always switch. And I think really the main factors in that was that I was kind of interested in math and science. I don't honestly remember if I knew, I have a feeling that I knew that engineers got paid pretty decently, but it probably wasn't my, my biggest motivating factor.
2: Gotcha. That makes sense. So talk us through now, you're a college graduate. Do you have any student loan debt? What do your first couple of years look like? as far as like your own personal finances look like once you got out into the real world? Yeah. So
3: I was lucky because my dad actually claimed me as, uh, I guess a dependent when I was going through college and my dad has always been semi-retired kind of working from home and uh, he's actually a bassoon repairman. So I'm sure that a lot of his uh, income is cash So basically, he didn't have a lot of taxable income. And so I got a pretty decent amount of, uh, you know, I guess they just call it straight financial need-based aid. And then I also remember I applied for a ton of uh, scholarships that were, you know, kind of a cool thing. I remember in college that they had, you know, a lot of people apply to scholarships when they're going into college or before they go to college. But I remember I found that there are a bunch of scholarships at UC San Diego sort of affiliated with the financial aid. You know, I think I won a scholarship called the Malcolm R. Stacy, who I have no idea who this guy is, but basically they gave me thousand dollars every quarter just for applying for these scholarships. So I always felt like that was a cool little tip uh, right there. I worked all throughout college. I had a bunch of different jobs, so I was saving money. And uh, you know, because I think the financial based aid paid for about half of it. I graduated UC San Diego with about twenty thousand dollars in debt. And uh, luckily, uh, my mom uh, paid off all of that debt for me. So I definitely have to thank my parents because coming out of college, I had no debt. I had a bunch of money saved up because I had been working in college and I got a job right in San Diego as soon as I graduated. And I believe my starting salary was $57,500. I don't know why I remember that, but I'm pretty sure I'm like 95% sure that was my starting salary.
1: Can we go back to the part where you say that your dad has a lifestyle by design, semi-retired bassoon repairman, which I'm assuming is something that he's passionate (laughs) about. Why are we even talking to you at this point? Yeah, You
3: know what? Actually, my dad may make for a a great interview for you because he's lived a really good life, I feel like. So he went to USC and he was in the marching band. So he's always been a musician. And when he graduated college, I know he did some odd jobs, some construction and things like that before becoming a professional bassoonist, I guess is what it's called. He played in, in uh, St. Louis Orchestra, Mexico City, some Philharmonic. I actually, I'm actually, i not sure if I'm using the right terminology, someone who's a music brother. Well, he'll probably, probably
1: correct you later. at the family dinner, but uh,
3: we'll just let it slide. <laughs> yeah, but basically he was a professional uh, bassoonist, I think is what you call it, and played all around and, uh, kind of semi-retired. But, you know, I think along the way he was doing things in real estate and he was working construction. I know even at one point he, you know, it's sort of like your parents, you don't know exactly what they did when you weren't born, but I know he did a lot. And so by the time I was born, he was actually basically a stay at home dad. And, you know, even to this day, he still, uh, works at home and does bassoon repair. And I think he's one of the only people in all of Los Angeles that does it. I mean, there's not a ton of bassoons floating around here, but he does have that market cornered, I think.
1: Wow, what an amazing backstory. And basically, it kind of almost indicates that you are the prototypical second-generation phi. Wow, that is yeah, really no,
2: cool. dope. A follow-up episode, for sure. Well,
1: wow, we keep building the queue out, Brad. We're going to have episodes through the end of 2020. <laughs> Having said all that and set the stage, I kind of want to go deeper into the scholarship messaging that you were just talking about. You said, I got this very specific package. I knew not to just look inside the box, but to see what else was available to stack onto this. And I'm just curious, for our audience that's listening to that, what's the takeaway? Is it just that it was financial aid based or was there anything else you did to separate yourself? So when they're picking the one winner of the scholarship, they went with you over student B.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, I remember actually that there were a list of scholarships that you could apply for. And of course, you know, these are ones that were sort of offered by my college, right? UC San Diego. And so they had some that were in honor of certain alumni and they had some that were, you know, if you were a specific uh, ethnic heritage, right? And so basically I just looked for anything and everything that kind of remotely applied to me. I'll be honest. I was probably a little (laughs) extra aggressive. I mean, I'm half Asian, so I'm sure that I applied for all of the Asian-based scholarships. I was an engineer. So, I remember specifically that there were a couple engineering scholarships. And, you know, I, I bet if it had the word engineer in there, whether it was electrical or chemical, I probably applied for it regardless. And then I know that there was one that you had to submit an essay. And so I remember writing a short one page or less essay for this scholarship. And I think for me, it sort of goes back to I'm always looking, you know, what can I do? I bet a lot of people look at an application for a scholarship and they see, oh, it requires an essay. And I bet that knocks out a lot of people. And so for me, you know, you know, I'm not going to go and spend a ton of time working on an essay, but I do want to think about, all right, what can I do that maybe 70 or 80 or even 90% of people aren't willing to do? Maybe 80% of people aren't willing to do even just a half a page essay. So I'm going to at least give myself a chance with a half a page essay. Maybe it only takes an hour, but now I can stand out over 70, 80% of people. Do you
2: remember that essay?
3: I have no idea, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure that it was less than a page. <laughs>
2: That's cool though. That's the 80, 20 principle, right? You're not applying for a hundred thousand dollars scholarship that a million other kids from across the country are applying for. You're looking for very targeted ones that let's say, like you said, 80 to 90% of people just aren't applying for it just because they, they don't meet the requirements. And then you spend an hour or two, right? Writing an essay, there's return on investment on there, obviously like that's just a good bet from a, from just that sheer mathematical perspective i love that harry
3: yeah and i guess that's sort of my uh, you can probably tell that i definitely used to be an engineer right because i'm always kind of thinking about things in those terms i mean even when i I remember the other day when i was at an ice cream shop and you could fill out your email to save you know 75 cents on your ice cream and so i literally wrote my email it took five seconds to write my email down and drop it in the box i saved 75 cents I look over and my wife is just staring at me like, why did you just do that? And I was thinking to myself, well, 75 cents times 12, you know, that's my per minute rate times 60 would be my hourly rate. I think that's like hundreds of dollars per hour that I just made. You know, <laughs> it was only a 75 cent savings. I'm right? pretty sure Brad does that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Kindred spirits
2: here, Harry. I love it.
1: So you're an aerospace engineer. You've got the dream job working with Boeing. Like, why does the story not just finish here? I mean, this is it. You've got your 30 to 40 year career with a tried and true company that's absolutely stable and it's not going anywhere. You write your own ticket for ninety nine point nine percent of the population. This is what it looks like, but not you. Let's let's talk about that.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I would sort of stop you right there. I don't know that it was my dream job. I mean, it was definitely something that I enjoyed And it was definitely something where I was making good money. You know, by the time I was at Boeing, I had five or six years experience, had gotten one or two raises. So, you know, I probably wasn't making or I wasn't making six figures yet, but I was definitely close with the all in compensation. You know, lunch breaks were very easy. (laughs) You know, I remember I was playing basketball at lunch uh, on the Boeing campus and, you know, I had a good workload, but it wasn't intense where, you know, I was staying till 7 or 8 p.m. every night. So it was definitely a good job. But I think I looked around the office and, you know, it wasn't a sudden up at Boeing, I think it was over my time in as an engineer is, you know, from meeting a lot of these people. I remember, uh, you know, at Boeing, there was a guy sitting across from me who literally worked in that same building 30 years ago for a different company. And, you know, I, I think just looking around and seeing these guys who, you know, they were all doing it, but they were complaining every Monday morning when they came in. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I probably am not going to be able to do this job for 30, 40 years. I just don't understand why anyone would want to do something that they hate or that they dislike when there's so many opportunities out there, if you're looking. And I think that's really the stage of my life that I was in. You know, I was content. I was happy. I could have probably done it for many more years, but I knew that there had to be something better. And so I was just really constantly looking for other opportunities. A lot of that was working online and you know, basing things off of my first online business, my, my personal finance blog, uh, you know, just looking for opportunities there. And that's kind of how I stumbled upon the Uber and Lyft stuff.
2: So Harry, I'm curious, was meeting these coworkers, I guess, who had, who had been there for decades or who were disgruntled on every Monday morning, was that the impetus to get you into the FI world and side hustles? Where do you think that really came from? I'm curious about that point where you said, all right, this is not something I'm doing for decades. I need to figure this out. Was it a dual prong strategy of cut my expenses, get to FI? and or getting the side hustles in, where did you fall down on that continuum?
3: Yeah. So I think I have a pretty good answer for that because there definitely wasn't a specific point where I sat down and said to myself, I'm not going to be able to do this for 20, 30, 40 years. Right. I think it was more the general feeling that I had. And I knew to myself, I knew that I wouldn't be able to do this forever and that I needed to at some point kind of figure something better out. But I wasn't in a rush to do it because, you know, like I said, honestly, I mean, I think that working as an engineer or at a job, you know, I, I was doing everything that I wanted to do. I had vacation. I was taking vacation. Obviously, I had to come into an office every day. But at the same time, you know, I think I was still living a very good life. I was in Southern California, uh, had a bunch of friends and family nearby, I was making good money. I had purchased a condo, you know, so I sort of had everything that someone might want. But I also at the same time, I just didn't think it was sustainable. And I think that was the biggest kind of motivating factor for me is that you know it wasn't that i have to figure something out in the next year it was that uh you know at some point in the future i need to figure something out that's going to make me more challenge you know challenge me more make me more interested make me more passionate i think that's the best way to describe it i wasn't passionate about my job and uh you know i didn't see any reason why i shouldn't be so you know you talked about how you were willing to start a side hustle and you initially
1: started a personal finance blog, but we're not really talking about the personal finance blog today. You're not, you're not a personal finance guy necessarily, but you are the rideshare guy. And I just want to know, like, let's talk about that pivot. What even got you interested in this idea of rideshare? What sort of impact did Uber and Lyft uh, have on your life? How did it play into this kind of lifestyle
3: by design strategy of yours? Yeah, so I mean, I first heard about Uber and Lyft as a passenger. I was taking it at the time, I was living in Newport Beach in Orange County, California, and I was taking it as a passenger here and there. And, uh, you know, one day, I talked to a driver, you guys will actually like this story, when Lyft first launched in Orange County, they were paying drivers just to be online available for rides, but you know, while they were growing their passenger base, there weren't a ton of rides. So this driver I talked to told me he was getting paid, I think $24 an hour just to sit there at home and watch Netflix. He was doing maybe one ride a day and getting paid $24 (laughs) an hour And so you guys know what I was thinking at that point. Oh, sign me up. Right. How do I would love to work and, you know, not work and get paid. So I sort of signed up basically that same day to drive with Lyft. And, you know, by the time I actually got signed up and started doing rides, that promotion was over. But it was just funny that that was kind of the the impetus for getting me signed up for Uber and Lyft is the ability to get paid and not work.
1: Well, let's go into this specifically. I'm very curious and I'm, and I would even say I'm a little bit cynical on these, on on some of these ride share programs. Just that's my own potential bias, just because I had a brother that tried to do it and didn't really, you know, he didn't really make a lot of money doing it. He, he, He tried to buy a new car and just, you know, the, the economics of that whole thing just got out of hand. But if someone was to follow your advice, you know, in 2018, what is the play for someone that is looking at Uber or Lyft as a viable side hustle?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think in general, the best way to put it is Uber and Lyft are not going to make you rich, but it can definitely be. A great temporary situation it can make you a few bucks here and there and it can be fun so i think when you look at it with that mentality as a true side hustle you're going to sort of set yourself up for the best chance at success now the unique thing is that unlike a regular job you know let's say you want to go work at starbucks or let's say you want to go work you know even a corporate job right there's a ton of variability right with driving for uber and lyft depending on what city you're in if you're in a bigger city like LA San Francisco Chicago New York right off the bat demand is way higher there so you're gonna be you're gonna be able to make more money there now the other thing is the times and the places that you drive if you drive Friday Saturday night when people are out and it's busy and demand again is super high and surge pricing is out you're gonna make more money and the third thing that makes it even more complicated and kind of adds to that variability is the expense side of things uh, you know all uber and Lyft drivers are actually not only responsible obviously for their income but also their expenses. So you have to pay for gas, you have to pay for depreciation. So it does matter what type of car you're driving if you're really looking to maximize your profits.
1: So how does the person, you know, like yourself that's looking at this now with that construct that you just set up for us, if you're going to do this and it's going to be viable How are you looking at the tax end of things to really optimize that? And then also, how are you using those limitations that you put, the time, the surge, everything else? How are you using that to maximize your profit? And then in a perfect scenario, what is that looking like?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's important to set the realistic expectations first. You know, so earlier in the year, we surveyed 1100 drivers and they reported making about 16 to 17 dollars an hour before expenses you know expenses might run you about three to five dollars per hour so most drivers are making ten to fifteen dollars an hour on average which is not a ton of money but like i said there's a ton of variability there so if you're in a bigger city like a san francisco or la right off the bat the average goes up by five dollars an hour we also found that you know drivers with more experience so the more trips you do The smarter you are, the savvy you are, your income goes up again. I mean, that's sort of what my whole business is predicated on, that, you know, the better driver you are, the more money you make. So I was sort of glad to see that. But, you know, so you kind of have an idea of, you know, a ballpark of what the earnings are going to be. And I think from there, you know, the nice thing is that there is a very low barrier to entry. If you have a smartphone and an eligible vehicle, and that could be 2002 or newer in a lot of cities you can get started and you can literally try it out and just see if it works for you. You know, Unlike other businesses that might require investment, time, money, even setting up a website, I mean, that might take you a, a full Saturday. You can get approved for Uber and Lyft from your couch and be driving within a few days. So I think I like that aspect that, you know, it's easy to try. And definitely that's one thing we hear from a lot of new drivers is that, you know, they like that, that it's so easy to get online and onboarded quickly.
2: So Harry, I'm always looking for these little tidbits. First, I want to say, It's great that you set the expectations. I think that is really important. Like if someone thinks they're going to come in and make a full-time salary at this probably fairly unlikely, especially at that net of. 10 to $12 an hour or roughly what you quoted. So, yeah. but that's Although said,
3: I will say, you know, we, we can definitely get into it. I will say that it is possible if you're the, you know, if, if all the stars align, I mean, we have, you know, one of my contributors, he actually made $2,800 last week driving Lyft in San Francisco. So it sort of shows you that, that there really is the range of, you know, from high to low. We also, there's drivers who are making less than minimum wage. So sorry to interrupt
2: you, but definitely. <laughs> there's no, a lot that's of great. And, and that actually ties into my question, which is you said a quote, the better driver you are, the more you make, I'm looking for those couple little hacks that someone listening to this can shortcut all those hundreds of hours of, of driving and not making that kind of money per hour. What are a couple things that you could pass along that, that would help someone kind of bump up their hourly rate?
3: Sure. I mean, I have a couple specific things that they can do and then just sort of my general advice that I think would be super helpful for someone that's looking into this. And I mean, I think the first thing is even in my new book, The Rideshare Guide, I talk about, you know, following the alcohol, right? (laughs) Especially when it comes to Uber and Lyft, you want to go where the rides are and people are typically taking Uber and Lyft, uh, you know, times of high demand are friday saturday nights when people are drinking so you know let's say you're the type of person you don't need to go out to the bars friday saturday night or on july 4th you don't mind working a few hours in the morning uh, you know whatever works with your schedule you can always find these times of very high demand And that's typically where you can go in and make the most amount of money. So that is kind of my number one tip for a lot of drivers is to really kind of look at those times of high demand. But I think also in general, you know, the overall strategy and really the mindset that you have to come with is that sometimes you have to remember, as an Uber or Lyft driver, really anyone in the gig economy, you're running your own business. And running your own business can be tough. It can be a little cutthroat at times. And I think kind of understanding that being a savvy driver, not every passenger, not every trip, and not every area of town is going to be profitable. And understanding that income and expense side of things, you know, that kind of mindset, I think, is what ends up uh, benefiting a lot of drivers, you know, getting them to that upper echelon
1: is the upper range kind of you can make up to like 50 or $60 an hour if all the stars align? Is that kind of like where this range is?
3: Yeah, I mean, I'd say the upper echelon is probably that 30 to $40 an hour range. And that's going to be in the bigger cities like San Francisco and even some in LA. It's going to be tough, you know, if you're out in the middle of the country where it's not as busy to get that no matter what you do. But I think that definitely is uh, on the table. And, you know, one thing I kind of forgot to mention that is pretty important, too, is the flexibility of driving for Uber and Lyft. And, you know, when we survey drivers and we talk to drivers, that's the thing that comes up over and over. The two things they care most about is pay. Obviously, everyone cares about how much money they're making, how much money they're saving, and then also the flexibility. And I don't think most people realize just how flexible Uber driving for Uber is. You know, I would say regardless of sort of your situation. And again, I'm a little biased because I want everyone (laughs) to drive for Uber and Lyft. But, you know, they have, you know, today, for example, I could go out and drive five hours for Uber. Let's say I only make $65. I can cash out that money instantly to my bank account and it can be there within 20 minutes. So I think that when you combine the scheduling flexibility with Uber, literally you can work whenever and wherever you want for as long or as short as you want and also cash that money out instantly. It's sort of like just a good backup plan to have. And I feel like it fits well into that sort of theme of being financially independent and, you know, having something as a backup where, you know, Hey, this may not pay your rent, but if you want to go out for a night on the town and you don't want to cut into your savings, go drive for Uber for a few hours, make the money
2: to pay for your dinner, and then you're done. Harry, in light of that flexibility. So let's say I'm a regular suburban office worker and I have, let's say a 20 or 30 minute commute And in a perfect world, I'd love to make a couple extra bucks on my way and who knows, maybe meet someone in my, in my area that I could talk to for 20 minutes. Is, is there any way that someone can kind of build that in as a rideshare driver, that kind of specific, like, of course, you know, going out of your way a couple of minutes, et cetera. But like, is that doable to just say like, all right, this is my route. Maybe I can pick someone up roughly on this route.
3: Yeah. And so, I mean, honestly, that situation you described just now is literally what Uber and Lyft are perfect for. (laughs) And that's kind of one of the reasons why I love going and talking to audiences like yours, because I feel like there are a ton of people in your audience who are going to fit that profile and don't know all the benefits. You know, most people honestly don't use Uber and Lyft for what you just described. They use it because they need to make money. <laughs> and I think that there's so many ancillary benefits of driving for Uber and Lyft, you know, it's the conversations you have, the practice at running your own business, making a few bucks on your way to or from work. So Uber and Lyft both uh, have this feature called destination filter. So what that allows you to do as a driver is when you're leaving your house and so I did it. we might be able to link to this in the show notes. I did a big experiment where I basically own everywhere I went and LA, I used a destination filter for about three months straight and kind of calculated my hourly earnings and all of that. But basically, what happens is let's say I'm at my house. I turn the destination filter on to go to work and I can also set a time that I need to be there at work by, right? You know, within reason, right? So if it's 30 minutes away, you can usually set an hour timer, right? Double the time. So you do need to have a little bit of flexibility. You know, when you, if you have to be there right at 8am, it may not work as well, but if you have some flexibility, it'll work. And Uber will now only send you ride requests headed in that direction. So what that does is, you know, you're not going to make a ton of money. You might make 15 to 20 bucks on your way to work, but you might only go 15 minutes out of your way right and again thinking about it on that hourly rate you know I think when I did this experiment I was around 30 to 40 dollars an hour Now I wasn't making 30 to 40 dollars every time I went out and did this but you know I might only do one trip and it might take me four minutes out of my way the other cool thing is that you know now all of these miles are deductible right because when you're driving for Uber and Lyft you're an independent contractor all these miles are deductible as an Uber and Lyft driver so you can actually offset a lot of that income so if you can make 30 dollars an hour doing this And you can offset all of that income. And let's say you're a high wage earner, you know, making $150,000 a year and your marginal tax bracket is 30 or 40%. Now you see that that $30 an hour is actually even more. It might be, you know, $50 an hour, you know, when you think about it compared to your day job. So there's lots of really cool little tips and tricks and kind of hacks like that that I think, uh, you know, if people knew a little bit more about driving for Uber and Lyft, they may be able to
2: take advantage of. Yeah, Harry, that is a huge takeaway, but I absolutely love that. And I hope everybody really listened intently because that's something that people legitimately could do just as part of their normal lives.
3: Yeah, it really doesn't even include all of the fringe benefits that I like to refer to. You know, I mean, I like, you know, I work from home, so I like talking to people. (laughs) I like having interesting conversations. You know, I read up on the news. I like different topics. And I've had some amazing conversations with passengers. I had a lawyer in my car a few weeks ago for 30 minutes, and I basically just peppered him with business questions and got a bunch of free legal advice. So that was kind of cool. And, you know, I've even had friends who have met uh, their significant other driving for Uber.
2: So, I mean, it literally ranges the gap there and it's kind of cool. That's amazing. So you are still driving for Uber and Lyft, right? That's what you just alluded to. And, and I kind of want to get into that. So you were an aerospace engineer and you were moonlighting essentially as a rideshare driver that predated you starting the website. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's how I, you know, that's kind of what inspired me to start the rideshare guy, the website, but you know, I was working for Boeing, like we talked about. And I started driving for Uber and Lyft, and it was pretty much you know, my wife was in med school at the time, so I had a lot of free time. And Friday, Saturday nights, instead of going out to the bars, I was driving for Uber and driving for Lyft. And you know, these services were new. And I think definitely the trend that we see in the gig economy is that when these services are new or when they're first launching, they definitely pay more. So I was making pretty good money, uh, you know, usually thirty to forty dollars an hour, which is probably not nearly you know, it's not really doable anymore on your typical Friday, Saturday night. But when when I first started, I was making more driving for Uber and Lyft just 10 hours a week than I was at my day job. And I think that was definitely, you know, I wouldn't say I got pushback, but a lot of people, you know, I wasn't afraid to say, Hey, you know, I'm driving for Uber and Lyft on the side to my coworkers, to my friends, to my family. And I definitely got some funny looks. I definitely got people who were probably thinking, you know, you're an engineer, you don't have to drive for Uber and Lyft. But for me, again, it was something that was a ton of fun and I was making more than my day job on an hourly basis. So that was pretty cool. These days, you know, I'm running the site full time and my business running my business full time. I do still go out and drive for Uber and Lyft here and there, try out new services, really kind of to stay up to date on the apps and uh, you know, see what's going on there though.
1: I wanted to talk about this a little bit more and dive into it because, you know, sure. You've been featured in Wired magazine, CNBC, New York Times, Forbes, NPR. Over fifty thousand people have subscribed to your email list to just get the latest information. How do you transition from a guy that is just kind of doing this on the side to someone who has basically come become the spokesperson for not necessarily representing Uber and Lyft, but the drivers. You are their ambassador. What does that transition look like?
3: Yeah, no, and I'm glad you pointed that out because I definitely enjoy, you know, one of the things I enjoy about my job is kind of representing drivers. And, you know, I wouldn't say that we're an advocacy group. We're definitely sort of content is the product, but as you can imagine, you know, drivers are my audience and that's really who I care about and try to help. But you know, I think really that transition for me, I started my I started the site, the Rideshare Guy, while I was working at Boeing. And so I was spending probably twenty to thirty hours a week building up the Rideshare Guy, creating content, promoting the content, And especially, you know, at the start, it was all about promoting the content, getting people to read it, you know, building those connections, starting to establish relationships with the media. As you mentioned, I've been very fortunate to be quoted quite a few times in the media and featured and things like that. And, you know, really just a lot of the relationships that I built with those reporters helped big time to kind of grow the site. And, you know, I definitely have to say that one of the nice things about my day job was that, you know, as long as you can get all your work done. No one says anything, you know, if you're kind of, <laughs> or maybe if they knew they might, but, you know, I was spending probably at least an hour to a day, you know, working on my site, responding to comments, checking emails, kind of doing, you know, sort of my blog work while I was at Boeing. Nobody really knew because I was still getting my work done. So that, you know, I, I really liked that strategy of kind of, you know, I had my safe and secure day job, but on the side I was hustling and I was doing everything I could to kind of grow this site.
2: Harry, as we said from the outset, you're kind of a a business mind that I look up to. So I've always been curious to ask you this question. I don't think I ever have, but I'm curious about the name of the website. I know you're in the miles and points world. And of course you're familiar with the points guy. Was that any inspiration for the rideshare guy? Is that where it came from? Is part of your success due to the fact that you took this mantle of I'm the rideshare guy, or my website is the rideshare guy? Or do you think part of it is First Mover Advantage? Were you one of the early sites? Talk me through the name and how you think that has benefited you.
3: Yeah, so Busted, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I'm a huge uh, The Points Guy fan. And I would say that right after your guys' podcast, I think uh, The Points Guy is definitely one of my favorite content creators. You know, so I was always reading The Points Guy and, you know, just really more for fun. So when I started my site, definitely drew some inspiration from The Points Guy. But I still remember, you know, when I was thinking about the name for my, you know, my rideshare site, whatever it was going to be called, I wrote down a list of probably 40 or 50 names, you know, the Uber guy, Uber driving, the rideshare guy. Rideshare this, rideshare that, and honestly, I didn't put a ton of thought into it. I don't remember why I picked the rideshare guy. Probably because it sounded like the points guy, and uh, you know, I didn't put a lot of thought into it, and I picked it. It has definitely worked out well. You know, I don't think the name is the reason why the site has been so successful, but I can tell you when I meet people in the industry, when I'm talking to people. They always say, Hey, look, it's the rideshare guy. <laughs> they don't, I don't know if everyone knows my first name. So I definitely think that that name, that branding has sort of stuck. And luckily, you know, it's worked out really well for me, but I think for the most part, I think kind of the advantage I had in, in starting the site was that I had some experience blogging. You know, I wasn't a professional by any stretch, but I kind of knew the gist of, you know, creating some content, writing some blog posts, getting, you know, some basic strategies at promoting it, getting people to link to it. And, you know, I think that's the big thing when people are just starting, they want to write things and then they hope people will come and read it. And I sort of knew that I'm going to spend about half my time writing stuff and I'm going to spend the other half of my time getting people to come in here to see my stuff, to share it with them, to read it. And so I think that there's definitely a little bit, you know, I had an advantage there that I had some experience. And I think the other big thing is that I was definitely one of the first people to do it. So, you know, that has always been a theme in my life. I like being the only one doing something, or I like standing out from the rest of the crowd. And I think that, you know, this wasn't by any super special skill that I, uh, you know, stood out from the crowd. It was just that I happened to start driving for Uber and Lyft when they were small companies and then they kind of exploded onto the scene. So that for that part, I definitely feel very fortunate.
1: So Harry, Brad and I always, when we're doing these interviews and we have someone that's being willing to just basically show everything they did that worked. We try to put ourselves in the shoes of that individual that's starting out our day one. So forget the fact that you get millions of page views a month at this point. And your site is basically is the center of the Uber Lyft universe for the drivers. That individual starting on day one has maybe not even gotten their first comment on their blog. They have their brand name locked down. What are those actionable tips that you could give to that individual that's just trying to figure out how do I become the center of, you know, a particular niche or a particular topic for a group, even a small group of 500, to a thousand people, what is it, what does it look like to make that happen?
3: I mean, I think the first thing that you have to do probably even before you pen your first, I guess, type your first post is you have to find something that you're passionate about or that you're interested in because creating content online. And I think especially just working for yourself in general, at a certain point, it's going to be a grind. At a certain point, there's going to be a lot of challenges that you're going to face, and I think in order for you to overcome a lot of those challenges, you have to really be passionate, or at a minimum, just be very interested in the topic at hand. And for me, with rideshare, you know, I had just learned about Uber and Lyft, but I like tech. I like you know all the technology aspect. I thought this mo- this new mobility, this rideshare, you know, going actually out and doing it was a cool idea and it wasn't something that I said, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to drop everything I'm doing and this is, you know, what I have to now do for the rest of my life." But I was definitely interested and passionate. And so I know that that kind of went a long way when I started, you know, I'm creating content very consistently. So I started off with 3 blog posts a week and you know even before i ever started my site i wrote down 50 ideas you know of basically article ideas that i would write so i wanted to make sure that i would have enough content going out and driving for uber and lyft was definitely a help and i think that's a nice thing about blogging and creating that sort of personal what i call you know the difference between a blogger and a journalist a journalist is an expert at being a journalist they're going to go out and talk to experts you know in rideshare they're going to talk to sources they're going to interview people they're going to ask great questions the nice thing about being a blogger is you don't have to be an expert at least at the start a lot of people can empathize with you if you're just getting started you're trying to figure things out and they're learning with you along the way so I think that's really kind of the big things for me when I was first getting started I was writing content you know everyone was in the same space right we were all trying to figure things out and so I was writing content you know that was just very much you know kind of me figuring out how to do this how to make more money I was an engineer. So I sort of played to my skills of creating spreadsheets, tracking
2: all of my earnings. And I think people found a lot of value in that. So Harry, actually, you brought up in there about journalists and and you were talking about it in a different sphere, but you've been quoted in major, major publications on a regular basis. You're a go-to guy for quotes about the ride-sharing industry. How does that come about? Again, that person who's starting their blog on day one, they have maybe 10 page views a month. They're not Harry, the rideshare guy. How do you get from here to there? And how much do these journalists and these connections, how much does that matter?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, I think when you're first getting started, the media side of things, you know, getting quoted and getting featured is obviously attractive, but I don't think it matters a ton at the start. You know, when you're at the 10 page views a month or 10 page views a day, 100 page views a day, there's a lot of organic stuff that you can do. And that's really what I did to grow my site. I mean, I was in all of the forums. I was in all the Facebook groups, just helping people, you know, answering their questions and then maybe sending them a personal message. Hey, I've got, uh, you know, a website that we've go into more detail here. Right. And I probably just did that thousands of times. You know, I was on all the forums. I was on Reddit. I was basically going where I was finding these groups of drivers, you know, these existing communities and kind of injecting myself there and trying to provide as much value as possible without being too spammy or seeming too spammy. So, you know, that was really kind of those types of strategies or what I used to grow. And at a certain point, there was an inflection point where I started to realize, hey, you know, I'm reaching hundreds of people a day. I'm reaching maybe a thousand people a day. But Sites like the the New York Times, uh, Wired, right, Forbes, these sites are reaching tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Some of them are reaching millions of people a day. So how can I kind of tap into that? How can I leverage that? Again, you can't just write stuff or, you know, sit back and hope the reporters are going to come to you, the reporters are going to find you. And I think that's when you really put yourself in a reporter's shoes. A lot of the reporters I know, they have two email addresses, for example. And that's going to be one for people they know, and one just sort of their public email for people to pitch them. Just to kind of show you the sheer volume (laughs) of emails that reporters are getting, a lot of them have two email addresses. And so for me, it was all about establishing relationships. Now, I had a big advantage because Uber was in the news a ton, and they still are to this day. So it was a very sexy topic. And there were a a lot of what I call beat reporters who were anything anytime Uber did anything you know the, there was a Forbes beat reporter there's a TechCrunch beat reporter there was a BuzzFeed beat reporter and so I started interacting with a lot of them on Twitter. Reporters all love Twitter. So I would start, you know, sharing, favoriting. And what I started doing was weekly roundups. And this is a strategy that people in other industries use. But since I was really one of the only people in Rideshare, I stood out because I was featuring every week. I was featuring four to five of the top Uber and Lyft stories. And then afterwards I would go out and tweet and say, hey. At Brad, at ChooseFi, we featured your story on Uber last week in our roundup. So now they see my name, and you know it feels good, right, to be featured, <laughs> even if it's on some tiny little blog. And eventually, I would reach out to them, email them, and say, Hey, you know, my name is Harry. I'm a driver for Uber and Lyft. I run this website that helps drivers. If you ever need anything, here's my contact info. Here's my cell phone. You can call me anytime, day or night. And what ended up happening was that a lot of reporters, you know, when they're doing a story on Uber and Lyft, it's nice to have that driver person. Perspective, And they don't want to just have some random driver that could be kind of a loony guy, <laughs> right? They want to have someone with a little bit of credibility and having that website attached to my name gave me some credibility. And so that's really kind of how I started with a building a lot of those organic relationships, just trying to be a resource, be of value to as many reporters as possible. And slowly that's built up over time. And that's kind of one of the turning points where I was going from getting, you know, a few hundred page views a day to consistently a thousand page views a day and then thousands of page views a day.
1: Holy crap crap, you mic dropped it. That might be the most valuable 90 seconds for a blogger ever on this particular podcast episode. That's amazing.
3: Awesome. Well, I've got lots more if you're ready.
1: No, 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 I'm ready. Let's do it now.
3: (laughs) No, I mean, I think really, though, the general strategy, it kind of combines a couple of things. It's sort of thinking about, all right, reporters, they love Twitter. So I'm taking advantage of that fact. I also know that if I cold reach out to someone again, right? they have a separate email for pitches. So how many pitches a day do you think they're getting hundreds? How many of those people do you think tweet them ahead of time before they email before I would email these reporters, I would also say, Hey, just sent you an email on Twitter. So now they're getting it from two points. I don't know that that's going to work for sure, but I do know that I'm standing out from maybe 80 or 90% of the rest of the people. So it's really about finding those things and kind of understanding, putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And that's just a good example. I think of the strategy I use there.
2: And Harry, that's the second time you've jumped ahead of 80 to 90% of people that you've described just in this one podcast. When you were talking about the college scholarships, it's, it's just that little hack that jumps you ahead of that many people.
3: Yeah. And I think it's really all about the way you look at things because this wasn't a big revelation. What I thought to myself was, you know, hey, I've run a blog in the past and I've gotten all of these really spammy pitches before. And these are from, you know, like basically automated spam. Anyone who runs a blog (laughs) has probably seen this before. You know, hey, I saw your article on XYZ topic and I want to share a guest post with you. Right. And you can totally tell that it's just complete spam, you know, so that you're getting, let's say, hundreds of those types of emails a day. What can you do to stand out? Right. And I've gotten pitches before where people sent me an email, they sent me a Facebook message, they sent me a LinkedIn message and they sent me a tweet and they weren't doing it to be annoying. You know, the way they they phrased it was that, Hey, you know, I know you get a lot of emails. So just in case you missed it, I wanted to remind you here on LinkedIn that I sent you an email and here's the email just for your reference, right? Things like that. That's not super intrusive, but that right there off the bat obviously stands out.
1: And I want to go back to this point this is a business you have treated this website you know it was a blog but you always viewed it as a business and you have grown oh, yeah, day it one. so so significantly to the point now where you actually have a team of writers but i think still even now when someone thinks about the rideshareguy.com and maybe they're reading an article they still feel like they have that personal connection with you so i'm curious like medium doesn't have this huffington post doesn't have this i don't think of you know what is it? Ariana Huffington. When I read an article and post, but you do have that intimate connection on the rideshare guy. Like, have you thought about that at all? And is that, is there something there?
3: Yeah, I mean, I actually, you know, I think having that personal connection is more fun, <laughs> to be honest. The reason why I do what I do is, you know, obviously it's a business for me first and foremost. It's something I'm passionate about, but it's also something that helps people, and that's one of the things I've been so surprised by is that people genuinely are very thankful for just creating content, and that was something that I never would have guessed. I mean, I get emails all the time that from people that say, "Hey, your guides are so helpful. I just bought your book. It's amazing." Um, you know, I just read. The through the whole thing. I just listened to every one of your podcasts from episode number one. I'm sure you guys have gotten similar uh, emails or messages from your listeners. And I think that's a cool feeling to have. And so really in every aspect of my business, I've tried to maintain that personal connection. I do use a team of writers, but I can tell you that organically or sort of naturally, people are going to associate everything you do or, you know, your writers do with you for good and bad, right? When one of my writers does a really great post, sometimes people email in and say, Harry, great post. And I kind of have to say, oh, you know, actually Christian on my team wrote this. But at the same time, when some of my authors have, you know, maybe included some language that was a little offensive, which has happened a few times, you know, kind of crass jokes, they say, Harry, why are you publishing this? (laughs) You're better than this, Harry. You're better than this. (laughs) I actually agree with you. You know, we probably shouldn't have made that joke. We we should stop trying to be funny because we're not funny. And, uh, you know, so it's Good and bad, but I think that personal connection. What I tried to do, so from the get-go, again, what I tried to do to stand out was that I replied personally to every single email I got, and now we still do that to this day. Now I have now one of one of the person one of the people on my team helps me reply to all those reader emails. But you know, looking back, I was thinking to myself, hey, uh, you know, I have friends who are bloggers. They have a couple hundred thousand page views a month. They're making a full-time living. I email them sometimes. These guys are my friends, and they don't email me back. What's up with that? (laughs) I can only imagine what happens when their readers email them, right? Probably 95% of their readers are not getting emails. So I wanted to be in that position where, hey, all of these readers who email me, every single one of them is getting a response back, you know, if they're asking a question or if they have a legitimate question. So that's something that I did from day one and still do to this day, although I sort of cheat now because I have a team or one person on my team that helps me. And, you know, we do the same thing with YouTube comments. I also do YouTube live. So we do a YouTube live every single month. I do a YouTube live every single month. And it's very consistent. We've been doing it for almost two years now. And I don't see anyone else in the rideshare space doing consistent YouTube lives where, you know, we're getting hundreds of thousands of page views a month and so you wouldn't expect that this you know I, I probably seem a lot more accessible than you know your typical blogger right because I'm doing YouTube lives I'm responding personally to emails and frankly I've met some people in real life and sometimes people email me and they feel like they know me and I'm thinking to myself oh I feel kind of bad because I don't know who this person is at all <laughs> but they have a really deep connection with me but I think it's kind of you know good and bad there. So we've been talking about growing a side
1: hustle and you have gone so granular and I, and I absolutely appreciate it, but I almost want to like slow down and realize that we may have missed this massive inflection point. You talked about how this was a 20 or 30 hours a week side hustle. At some point, this is just a full-time business. You're no longer working at Boeing anymore. Like talk us through that inflection point. What's going on in your personal life that allows you to do that. Let's just dive in there.
3: Yeah. I worked for six years as an engineer and I didn't have a ton of, you know, I didn't live a super lavish lifestyle. It was pretty normal. (laughs) So I was saving money. I was maxing out my 401k, contributing to an HSA and doing all, you know, Roth IRA, doing all that good stuff since I had my solid personal finance background. And as my site, the rideshare guy started to grow, I thought to myself, Hey, this could be, you know, a legitimate business opportunity here. I mean, I always I always started it because I thought it could be a good business, but I never, you know, I never really thought that it might actually replace my day job income and then some. And so it was kind of a cool, you know, almost epiphany that at a certain point, you know, I hadn't quite replaced my day job income but you know I was making a thousand two thousand bucks a month and I was only spending 20 to 30 hours a week and also I looked at sort of the growth numbers of the site right and it was really mainly traffic at this point I wasn't focusing on monetization for the first year at all I mean I still partnered up with a couple companies here and there but monetization really wasn't my focus for the first year it was more about growing the site growing the audience and we were growing you know we were probably growing 10 to 15 percent every single month and I was spending 20 to 30 hours a week on it And I thought to myself, hey, if I quit my day job, I'm going to be able to spend 40 to 60 hours a week on this project. And unless I'm really bad at (laughs) blogging, you know, I should see hopefully, you know, uh, an equivalent increase in the traffic. And so, you know, I think that the writing was kind of on the wall. Personally, for me, you know, I had money. I had money saved up. And, you know, with engineering, honestly, this isn't a job, you know, that's changing every single day. You know, when I, I remember when I gave my boss my two weeks notice and on my last day, He liked me. You know, he said, hey, if you ever need another job, feel free to come back. So I definitely feel like I had that safety net there if I needed it. Although I was thinking to myself, there's no way in heck I'm coming back. (laughs) But, uh, you know, definitely a lot of people were surprised when I left my job to go start this blog, but. I didn't feel like it was that big of a risk. I, I knew other bloggers you know, that were making a full-time living and I sort of knew the traffic levels they were at and I could kind of see the path that I was on there. So frankly, I didn't see it as a big risk when I left, but I think you know, I, I was, it wasn't a hasty decision either.
1: You said you knew other bloggers. What did networking look like for you? How did you have this kind of community of people to kind of lean on and get their opinion? How were those relationships developed?
3: Yeah. I mean, I have to say that I really owe it to a lot of the personal finance bloggers out there. Cause you know, when I was first starting my site that I still own to this day, it's called your personal finance, Pro. I haven't posted on it in a while. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't, uh, can we put it in the show it. notes? I actually don't recommend, I don't want anyone <laughs> listening to go read it, but <laughs> <laughs> I
1: really do want it. Well, wait, what's the, what's the link again?
3: YourPFpro.com. Okay. So yeah. Th- thank you for that.
1: And <laughs> you said it's still live. It's your fault, not mine. <laughs>
3: It is still live. But I mean, you know, I think uh, with that site, I just feel that I learned a ton from that. And, you know, I was doing a ton of the general promotion strategies and content creation and, you know, creating guides and doing this and learning about online marketing. And I kind of like to say that's really that was like my internship. That's where I honed my skills. I wasn't making much money or really doing it for the money at all. But one of the key aspects of that is I built a lot of relationships and I kind of left this out. But when I was first growing my site, I reached out to all of my friends that were personal finance bloggers all the people who you know we'd been featuring each other in roundups and exchanging links and doing all that and you know i'd even met some of them in person because i've gone to fincon the personal uh, finance bloggers conference a couple times and so i hit up all of my friends and ask them, hey, you know, I'm driving for Uber and Lyft now. This is related to personal finance. Do you want a guest post on how much money you can make as an Uber or Lyft driver? And I even remember a lot of people said yes because I had built those good relationships. And one of them was uh, Jay Money at BudgetsAreSexy.com. And I remember I wrote a guest post for him. It ended up being one of the top ten posts on his site. I think this ties in well because you were talking about, you know, I remember he was posting income reports at the time. I think he was very transparent about the numbers on his blog and things like that. And so uh, there were a few people like that that I was kind of looking to as a guide. And I ended up in that first year, you know, it was one of his top 10 posts. And obviously there are a bunch of links back to my site. And it was probably the top refer. I was getting hundreds of page views a day uh, or sorry, hundreds of page views a week sometimes from his site and that one guest post I wrote. So definitely that network helped for, you know, kind of the learning aspect, but also so getting my site off the ground too i was able to leverage that a lot
1: harry i'm so torn because i want on the one side i just want to go back to your personal story but on the other side i want to talk about these early days of what it looks like and one thing that strikes me is that traffic isn't built for most people it's not built because of that one viral moment that you write the most brilliant article of all time it's because of these base hits these small articles that yep. end up over time getting more and more traction it's just maybe five links five clicks a day from one particular website that you were a guest had a guest post on and maybe some Google traffic that popped up on something that you weren't even expecting and maybe a very targeted, you know, article that you wrote on something else. But it's like you build a portfolio that starts building your traffic over a series yeah. of weeks and months, right?
3: Yeah. And I mean, I think it's about being smart, right? Like, I think it's a smart move to leverage, you know, I've I've built good relationships with these people. I didn't know that I was going to start an Uber or Lyft site someday. But, you know, I built good relationships with with them because I like them. And, you know, just in general, I think having those relationships at some point, you know, you want to cash in on them, right? Maybe that's not the best terminology to use. But, you know, there's a point for building those relationships. And you want to leverage everything that you have when you're starting a new business. You know, I was looking at it from the perspective, hey, I'm going all in on this. I want to Uh, do everything and anything I can to make it work. And I think another good example was, you know, I went out and there weren't a ton of rideshare blogs. I think I was probably one of, if not the only ones when I first started my site. But I did find a bunch of other people who were writing about, um, you know, doing one-off posts about rideshare. And once people started, you know, and I had a little bit of traction and I started seeing some rideshare blogs pop up. And so what I did was I went out and reached out to all of those other way smaller rideshare blogs. There were maybe 20, 25 at the the time and this is a few months in but i went out and i asked if i could do a guest post on their site or you know we could do an exchange guest post and or we could trade links or you know link to each other a few times and each one of those individual bloggers probably got way more out of it than me but i also knew that i was reaching out to 20 or 25 of them and in aggregate you know i was going to get a lot out of it so that's really kind of the way i was approaching things
2: Harry, that's amazing. I mean, that is a story of networking and connections, and that's what we're always talking about here. These personal relationships, they just matter. Sometimes you don't know, hey, that one person at one of the other ride-sharing blogs, you might be a partner with them down the road on some crazy project. You just simply don't know where it's going to be. It might start as a random link sharing, but who knows where it'll end up, right? And I think Jonathan summarized it perfectly there, saying... This is not about that one crazy home run of getting on the front page of the New York Times. It's about being consistent, building your network, building your content. You're providing value to people. That is how I view this entire blogging podcasting world. It's providing value again and again, right. And getting people to come back.
3: Definitely agree. Although I will say getting on the front page of the New York Times will definitely help. (laughs) (laughs) That is very true. It's on my bucket list. There we go.
1: Harry, thank you so much again for just being so willing to kind of share your secrets and just being so open with it. Like this is actually what it looks like. This is, you didn't have to pay extra to get into some sort of level up course where we're then going to tell you the secrets behind the successful and non-successful bloggers. This is actually what it looks like. And it's just really cool to hear you be so willing to share this information. Now there's going to be people listening to this that are genuinely interested in looking at Uber and Lyft as a side hustle and maybe have additional questions just for you and about your journey. I have two questions for you. One, specifically, we said that there are certain cities that are really more tuned in from this. And I know that you sent out a survey Two people basically, you know, aggregating who was making money doing Uber and Lyft. So I'm curious if you had like a list of the top five or top 10 cities that if someone listening to this happens to be one of those, their ears would perk up and say, ooh, I should check that out. That's my question number one. And then two, how should people
3: connect with you? Definitely the top cities sort of by population in the U.S. are going to be some of the best cities to drive rideshare just because there's so many people in places like San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, San Diego, New York. Even some of the cities in Texas, uh, like uh, Austin, Dallas, uh, definitely heard good things about all those cities. And then as far as how people can connect with me, I definitely would say that uh, you know, the rideshareguy.com is my blog. And that's where we're posting four articles a week, tons of content up there. We also got a podcast, uh, the Rideshare Guy podcast, which I think your listeners may actually like because I basically just interview people that I want to talk to <laughs> on my podcast. And it's not always the nitty gritty of Rideshare. For example, my next interview that's going live in a couple weeks will be with a guy who interviewed for a job at Lyft. He didn't get hired, but one of the positives of that, you know, I've been trying to find someone who's interviewed at Uber or Lyft forever. The problem is if they get hired, they go sign an NDA and then can't come on to my podcast. And if they don't get hired, they're too embarrassed about it and they don't want to talk about it. But we just had a great conversation about his experience interviewing at Lyft and just generally applying for jobs and really a lot of the strategies that use, you know, he reached out to me ahead of time. So you can sort of imagine he's the type of guy that. does his homework and does his prep work. And uh, yeah, that was a great interview. And then, oh, I should probably also mention that I have a new book out, The Rideshare Guide that is in stores, Amazon available and whatever bookstores are still remaining these days, (laughs) but it should be pretty much everywhere.
1: Coming to a Barnes and Noble near you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. Now on most shows, that would be the end of the episode, but on this show, we would love to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this?
0: I was born ready. Let's do it. (laughs) In a world Drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation. These questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat.
2: All right, Harry, question number one, your favorite blog that's not your own.
3: So, I'd have to say my favorite blog is financialsamurai.com. And this is uh, one of my buddies, but someone that I've known in the personal finance space for a long time, Sam. He's, uh, you know, what I, I like to think of him as sort of a rich but thoughtful and frugal guy living in San Francisco. And, you know, the economics sometimes of just living in places like LA, San Francisco, and New York, uh, you know, it's just so different. The purchase price for a home and the, the potential salaries. And I think sometimes uh, if you're not in those, cities. It's hard just to justify like the pressures and all of that. And I think he does a good job wrapping that all up and, you know, kind of encompassing everything that matters to me, business, uh, you know, sort of personal life and then
2: also family. I think Brad, we're going to have
1: to reach out to him.
2: Yeah. Harry's the second person now to, to list financial samurai as, as his favorite blog. So yeah, that's gotta happen. I think.
1: Yeah. I think he'd be a great interview for you guys. All right. Well then question number two, your favorite article of all time. Now this can be one that you wrote or somebody else's.
3: Oh, one that I wrote. Um, Well, there's a lot to choose from, but (laughs) I wrote an article last year about driving for Uber and Lyft in 2017. And it's basically just a three or 4,000 word monster that, you know, really kind of encompasses everything that I like the strategy about driving for Uber and Lyft, the spreadsheets. I have this cool video that I created about, uh, you know, kind of it like follows me driving in Los Angeles. So you can actually see the route that I took on a map. So that's a cool one. And then uh, another, a blog post on a different site is actually from the creator of the cartoon Dilbert. His name is Scott Adams and he wrote a blog post. I think it was all the way back in 2007 and it was called the day you become a better writer. And I've had a couple smarter than me, people recommend this to me and a couple good writers. And basically, it's just a great quick blog post that kind of gives you some good insight into becoming a better writer as the title, uh, you know, imagines just some quick tips, kind of like a, what type of style and what you should think about. And, you know, I know some people actually read this every time before they sit down and write a blog post. And I don't go to that extreme, but I definitely like to read it every once in a while because, you know, I used to, be a very, very terrible writer. I once failed a paper in college. I didn't even fail. They gave me no grade because it was so bad. <laughs> they That's said, I don't bad. want
1: to read this. <laughs>
3: <laughs> they literally wouldn't give me a grade. That's how bad it was. And I think blogging over time has just made me a little bit more cogent and you know my arguments are a little more coherent now. And it's at least passable now for something that you might want to read.
2: And that's funny, Harry, because I have that article on a list of things to read. I think Tim Ferriss has mentioned it a number yeah. of times on his podcast. And nice. yeah, Scott Adams is a really deep thinker. I know I, I quote him a lot with the talent stack here at the Choose It By podcast. And he wrote a book called How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. And I highly recommend that to you and anybody yep. out there. Listening. I've read it's it. Great, nice. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. All right, Harry, question number three your favorite life hack.
3: You know, I thought about this for a while. My favorite life hack is what I call, you know, I would say have no shame because I think one of the common themes, you know, we talked about in this podcast is there are times where, you know, just because everyone else says that you shouldn't be doing something or everyone else might look down upon an aerospace engineer driving for Uber and Lyft, uh, you know, sort of go out there and try it for yourself. Do things for the reasons, you know, that are important to you. I think most people in life are doing it wrong. So <laughs> most of the advice that you hear is probably also going to be wrong. So that's kind of my my kind of hack is really just, you know, have no shame and do what you want to do. I
1: love the consistency. You know, you have all of these incredible varied stories. It's hard to piece them together with a common thread, but I think this episode does that. I mean, you can kind of see this decision tree that leads you to this incredible outcome with what at first glance looks like
3: random choices. And I I love it, man. I'm a huge fan of your work. I appreciate it. I think I'm learning about myself on this podcast. You guys are definitely asking some good and tough questions. I appreciate it. Well, we'll bring out the therapist couch for next season.
1: All right. Question number four, your biggest financial mistake.
3: This actually happened when I was working uh, as an engineer for my first company called Goodrich Aerostructures down in San Diego, and they offered what's called an employee stock purchase plan, or ESPP, which I had no idea what this was at the start. And you know, I think I started contributing a few hundred dollars here and there. And once I actually realized what it was, I maxed that thing out and put ten or twenty thousand dollars a year in it every year because it actually gave you, you know, sort of the lower stock price either at the beginning or end of a six or twelve month period. And it was basically kind of like free money that there was sort of like, it looked like there was some risk on the surface, but once you started to think about it, it was like actually a very good deal. (laughs) And I wish I would have maxed that out earlier because I would have made a few extra dollars at the beginning there. Yeah, that is a great tip.
1: And so many people have access to the ESPP, especially if you work for a large corporation, you probably have this baked in and it is potentially up to 15% free money on your contributions. It's, It's really incredible once you look into the math.
2: All right, Harry, question number five, the advice you would give your younger self.
3: Yeah, you know, I think the advice that I would give my younger self is just to try new things, try everything. I think that's a little bit cheesy, but kind of my twist on it is that in all aspects of life, I think that, you know, what I found obviously in business, you know, I've done a lot of that, but I think also just in your personal life, you know, even for me with food, I love food and this is kind of a funny story, but, you know, even for me, you know, growing up, there were a lot of foods like mushrooms and salmon and all these things that I didn't like and coffee. And just the more I tried it, the more I ate it, the more I liked it. And now I pretty much like everything. So I think that, you know, there are reasons why a lot of people like certain things and, you know, just continue trying new things and see what fits for you and what doesn't. But, you know, don't be afraid to try it at least a few times. I had tofu for the first time in my entire life last week.
1: Didn't exactly change my world, but I did have it. I'm 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 testing this theory right now.
3: Eat it like five more times and you know, try it different styles and different places. And you know, I I bet you'll start to like it. There you go.
1: All right. Now we do have a bonus question for you. To be honest with you, a lot of the questions that we and a lot of the conversations that we have on the show talk about things that you didn't buy, talk about frugality, but all of us make purchases based on value. And what we want to know is what is the purchase that you made over the past 12 months that brought the most value to your life?
3: So I'd have to say that it was actually a very recent purchase. I bought a couple Nest outdoor cams and a Nest doorbell. And basically these are video cameras that, you know, you download an app on your phone and you can set up motion alerts and people alerts and all this cool stuff. And, you know, I like the technology side of it, but I also just like, you know, I recently, my wife and I recently had a baby boy who's now four and a half months old. And I feel like it just gives me that added extra layer of security. I don't know that, you know, I'm going to look at my phone, see someone breaking in and call the cops. I doubt that will ever, you know, that would ever actually work out in reality. Well, not but if
1: they see I, you have the nest, they're running away, exactly. man. Exactly.
3: You know, I'm hoping that, you know, it's a deterrent and I think it's just kind of a combination of a cool technology and something that, uh, you know, gives me peace of mind. And that's what I'm looking for with a young baby in the house. I wonder if anybody has locked down the smart
1: thermostat guy, because it could still be out there.
3: (laughs) So I've also (laughs) got a Nest thermostat. So right now I'm an all Nest house and I'm very addicted to it. I highly recommend their products.
1: The (laughs) NestGuy.com. It just has a nice ring to it.
2: Oh, come on guys. Give me one courtesy. Laugh. Give me <laughs> I, I'm thinking trademark violation. <laughs> I'm, reg- I'm registering it right
1: now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Harry, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a total blast.
3: Yeah, no, I really appreciate you guys having me on and hopefully, uh, you know, I've inspired, uh, some of your listeners to either, uh, sign up to drive with Uber or to, uh, quit their job and start a blog about something they love, you know, once they've gotten some traction, at least. <laughs>
1: All right, Brad, I get it, dude. I am so blown away by everything that Harry has done up to this point and just these little steps that put in place that other people probably just take for granted. They write it off as, oh, this one guy just got lucky and that's not replicable. It is absolutely replicable, but most people aren't willing to look at the problem a little bit differently. And that's exactly what he did. I am just thrilled by this conversation.
2: Yeah. And he looked at the problem differently almost in every aspect of his life. And that is really, really rare And very cool. So, yeah, I I told you this was going to be just jam packed with actionable tips and just cool little rethinks on life and business. And yeah, Harry definitely brought it. So that was fantastic.
1: All right. If you've been getting value from the show, if you got value from today's episode, just take one second, press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. It just lets the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional episodes. If you want to support us and what we're doing here at Choose FI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. If you want to do that, just go to com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to choosefi.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of FI, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free. And just go to chooseFI.com slash PC. P as in Paul, C as in cat. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 38, The Why of FI. And right behind that, have them go listen to episode 21, The Pillars of FI. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go
0: down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.